As the United States commemorates Black History Month, I am honored to present an interview that I conducted with Dan Duster, great-grandson of Ida B. Wells Barnett. I originally interviewed Dan on March 13, 2022, and on March 29, 2022, President Joe Biden signed the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill into law. The legislation, more than a century in the making, was named after the 14-year-old who was kidnapped, tortured, mutilated, and killed for the offense of whistling at a white woman in Mississippi. At the historic bill signing, a photo captured Dan, his sister, President Biden, Vice President Harris, and several congressmen, including Bobby Rush of Illinois and James Clyburn of South Carolina. Also in attendance were Senators Cory Booker of New Jersey and Senator Raphael Warnock, who is the pastor of the iconic Ebenezer Baptist Church, previously led by both Martin Luther King Jr. and his father. Dan's presence at the signing was apropos, as years earlier, his great-grandmother received national recognition as the leader of the anti-lynching crusade. She brought her campaign to the attention of then-President McKinley in 1898 in search of reform. And 125 years later, Mrs. Ida B. Wells Barnett's great-grandson was a witness to history. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am pleased to have Mr. Dan Duster, who's known as the Barrier Buster. He influences leaders across the nation by showing them how to set and achieve goals, communicate effectively and realize their potential. Dan has helped community organizations, corporations and schools to do strategic planning, team building, effective communication, DEI, anti-sexual harassment and implement programs for leadership development and restorative justice. He has developed a powerful program called Metrics for Success. The acronym stands for these seven elements, motivation, expectations, tracking, resilience, integrity, communication, and structure to help leaders and their teams operate more efficiently. He is also a financial advisor. In addition, he is the great-grandson of Ida B. Wells. And Dan talks about her struggles and triumphs in the late 1880s to motivate people to overcome obstacles and stand up against injustices in the workplace, schools, and communities. So with that, welcome, Mr. Dan Duster. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. So I want to talk a little bit first about your financial advising because of the fact that Heirloom and Legacy is a program that really tries to get people to think about what their overall goals are, and in particular, their end-of-life planning and uh, ensuring that there is something that they are leaving behind. I often tell people who say to me, I don't have an estate. And I say to them, everyone has an estate of some sort. And so I wanna talk a little bit about just some basics of financial advising that, that you do with your clients uh, to get them to the point where they feel, you know, may, they may not have a lot, but what they have is relevant in terms of leaving a legacy and helping their uh, dis their descendants basically build wealth. I get a lot of attention and recognition for uh, being the, the legacy of Ida B. Wells, which again, I'm humbled by that, but also it's like, uh, you know, I had nothing to do with her. <laughs> right. Right, so I, I would be more proud if I were, if I were to pr produce Ida B. Wells. Um, that, that, that's phenomenal. Um, uh, as far as legacies go, you know, I've, I've been held accountable, um, more so. So let's back up and just talk about, uh, the, the, the history and the lineage for Ida B. Wells. So Ida married, uh, Ferdinand Barnett, who we'll talk about him later. He was a prominent civil rights attorney in Chicago. Um, and, uh, he already had two children. He was a widower, but he and Ida had four children together, which is, um, Charles Herman, um, Ida Jr., which is uh, rare, <laughs> but Ida did that. And then Alfreda, who she had when she was almost 42 years old. And then Alfreda had five children, uh, Ben, Charles, Donald, 
Alfreda and Troy and Donald, the middle one had three, which uh, David, uh, Daniel and Michelle. So um, that's the, the lineage. As far as legacies go, I, uh, at an early age, was held far more accountable as a duster in the Chicago area versus a descendant of Ida B. Wells. Um, I'm saying that to say that, um, and my mom comes from a rich history on her side mm-hmm. of uh, some slaves who escaped slavery from Tennessee to Texas to, to start a farm community called Pelham, Texas. And so um, I, I was you know, talking, uh, taught about legacy at an early age. Now, as far as me being a financial advisor um, and the legacy that's important there is, um, I, I got into financial services because I unfortunately had a number of friends who were passing away and they didn't have their financial house in order. And so literally doing GoFundMe campaigns and so forth. And then looked at myself and, and my friends and realized that, you know, we were taught, both of my parents, college educated, advanced degrees and so forth. We were taught, you know, how to be responsible with money. So, you know, you know, pay off credit cards, don't get into debt and and that sort of thing. Uh, but we weren't how to, taught how to create wealth. And there's a big difference uh, being being responsible with money and creating wealth. Sounds similar, but there, there's a big difference. And so that's why I got into it. And that that's my passion. I've, uh, last year, I um, on April 3rd, uh, 2021, um, I looked at the calendar. I'm like, wow, that's four, three, two, one. Like, okay, what's what's a big? That sounds like a countdown. So if it's a countdown, what's what's a, a big goal I would count down towards? And I came up eventually with having a at least a billion dollar impact. And I said, if I can help a thousand families um, have at least a million dollars in retirement and or pass that on to the next generation. That's a billion. A thousand times a million is a billion. So that's how, how I came up with it. And that's my mission. So I, I, um, I, I really, really want to help people, especially people of color, be successful and be able to pass on a meaningful uh, legacy and especially financial legacy. So that's a very ambitious goal. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that there are many uh, families who are, would probably love to have your input and advice in terms of getting to that level. Uh, what would you suggest uh, for someone who may just want to start off with any type of financial uh, kind of, I guess, grounding in terms of a, finan- of a financial strategy to do some basic things? We can talk about going further into the million dollars, but just some basic things like you, you mentioned paying off credit card debt. Um, anything else that you that you think would help ground people in? in getting to a place where they're a little bit uh, more fiscally sound. Sure. So top couple of things are, are being responsible with money. So, you know, living beneath your means, it's, it's not how much you make, it's how much you save or invest that makes a big difference. And then redirecting is that, um, so if you are in debt, I say um, typically uh, we pay higher interest you know, the the the, the um, more ch- financially challenged you are, the more th- that you're going to pay in interest rates. And I've got a workshop that I do called "Be Interested in Interest Rates." Is that we'll think about paying off something on a monthly basis and say, "Okay, I'm paying 100 a month on it," but if you're paying 29% interest, you're going to pay a whole bunch of money, and it's going to be difficult to pay that off. So, say number one is pay off. You know, don't don't get into high interest uh, debt, but if you are, pay that off first. And hold tight on whatever else you go. So credit, um, which is credit, is not bad. It's pay, paying high interest for credit is bad. And so you know you can do some things to um, improve your credit score and have as much credit as you want because you the, the more credit you have, the more uh, flexibility you have. But w- number one is pay off the high interest. Um, number two, as far as people working, is um, so our generation is kind of the first generation that really won't have access to pen- to pensions. It's, it's been a transition. In the late 80s, mid to late 80s, 80 plus percent of companies, 86, 87% of companies had pensions. And right now it's the exact opposite. It's about 14% of companies who have pensions. And so corporate America decided during that time frame that, hey, we're not going to be responsible for your pensions. It's not a sustainable model. So I'm, I'm not mad at them. Is you know, the pension structure was designed for people to, you know, work for 25, 30 years, 
retire at 60, 62, 65, live for another five years and die. <laughs> so the challenge is we, we don't comply and die. And so it messes up the whole <laughs> pension structure, right? So yeah. the, the numbers behind it is, you know, life expectancy, if, if it was 68 right now, it's 78. Some people are living into their 80s and 90s. And if you're collecting a pension, that that's not a sustainable model. So I, mm-hmm. I get it. Now, the current situation is a 401ks, whatever, um, self-retirement plan. So that's 401k, 403b, 457, depending on what type of organization or agency you're with. Or if you've got your own company, you can do your own uh, 401k or your own IRA, all, all pre-tax retirement accounts. And so max, especially if you're with a company that matches, max out the match. So that's number two. So Can number you one say is that again. Right. So number max one is right. Pay off high interest or don't get into debt. If you do pay off the high interest, number two is max out the match. So if they're matching, there's nothing better than free money. So a lot of companies will match anywhere from three to 6% and some match dollar for dollar, some match 50 cents on the dollar, whatever the match is, max that out. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's number two. And then if you still can, again, you, there's some income limits. You can do your own Roth IRA. Um, so IRA is individual retirement account. Again, traditional is that goes in pre-tax. The Roth, it, I wish they called it something different because it's, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> so um, or, or, or a, an IRA goes in pre-tax whenever you touch that money, hopefully after retirement, after age 59 and a half, then you're going to be taxed on it. because the So the government wants to get their tax money. They're typically going to get it once. So if they didn't get it going in, when you access it, they're going to get it. If you access it before 59 and a half, you'll get a 10% penalty. Um, unless there's an emergency, please don't do that. You're just giving the government 10%. So mm-hmm. find another way if you can. If, if you can't, I understand. And most of the advice that I give comes as do as I say, not as I've done. So I've cashed <laughs> out 401k when I was younger because I didn't fully understand it. And I'm like, retirement is way down the road. I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> At right, age 53, right. I'm like, oh, who's that? Retirement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and I think that some of us really probably did do it younger because I, I did the same, you know, younger and you're not thinking about retirement, but you don't even realize those years fly by fast. And then you look back and you say, huh, now I understand why, you know, people stay at jobs that have a 401k and they're able to put money in, maxing out why that is so important and uh, ensuring that you are being a good steward with your with your money so Mm -hmm. that you're not paying the high interest rates. Right. That you can get the lower interest rates. We saw at the height of the pandemic that the interest rates were lower, you know, and if you if you didn't have a lot of expenses, you were able to capitalize on that. Well, a lot of people were living as they as they saw, you know, paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. So it was really kind of hard to take advantage of those tax breaks. So the folks who were getting tax break advantages were the people who had, you know, a significant amount of money to begin with not the the person that was living paycheck to paycheck necessarily and losing their apartment and losing their home. So yeah, all of those things, very, very important to do. So let's talk a little bit about once you've done some of those things and you have, you know, you're, you're, you're able to maintain the salary that you have and, uh, have maybe a 401k or one of those other investment uh, properties that you mentioned, as well as you're keeping your your credit card debt down and all your other consumer debt, because we know that there's, you know, the cars and and everything else that you that you might have. What are what are some of the other things in terms of maybe um, student loans and education that you would suggest people do? Yes, I'm writing down a couple of notes here. So yes, uh, plenty of advice on that. <laughs> so uh, n- number one is, you know, when you have kids, um, so I was brainwashed in a great way <laughs> in that I was always asked, again, education was normal in my family. The point being is invest in education and especially um, for people of color, right? This time frame is if you're getting great grades, and or have some other ability, you can get scholarships. 
So education is one of the best things that you can invest in to, to get scholarships for academic. Um, I've got a friend of mine who sent, um, how many, and I won't say his name, but the other people will know. He, he's got several daughters that they went to college on bowling scholarships, right? And so there, there's other sports that are out here that um, people can get scholarships on. Or um, So look, look for scholarships um, is, is a number, a, another thing that you can do. Um, the other thing is a 529 plans, which is an educational fund specifically for, um, or an investment fund specifically for education. So the benefit of that is you can in, uh, invest in a 520, as the parent, I can put money aside for my child's 529 plan. The benefit is it grows tax-free on your federal taxes. So you can't deduct it on your federal taxes, but the growth, the growth on it is tax-free. Um, now, the states vary state for state as far as what you can do. In Illinois, you can deduct that contribution against your state taxes. So Illinois has relatively high state taxes. We're about four, over almost 5%, so 4.92, 4.95% for our taxes. So for 10 grand, that's almost 500 bucks, right? And so all those little things add up, and this is what wealthy people do, is they look at the little things, whereas people... Um, middle class and lower tend not to look at it. It's like, okay, what can I afford on a monthly basis? And all of that adds up. So being able to look at those things um, to, you know, whatever you can do to help cut the costs for college and redirect funds. So mm -hmm. um, part of your original question was what can people do is, you know, $15, $30 here and there every month adds up. And I can show you how, and I don't have the model with me right now, but starting at age in your 20s, as, as late as 30, um, you can redirect $200 a month in an investment that's going to give you about 9 to 9 to 10% return, which the S&P 500 does. So it's, that's a, a return, an average return over a long-term period. So sometimes it may be more, sometimes it may be less, but it'll average 10%. And if you can increase your investment by 5% every year, so you start with 200 bucks, next year is 210, next year is 221, and so forth. Um, you'll be a millionaire in 25, 30 years. And those are simple things to redirect. So 200, again, if I had done that in my 20s, that's staying, instead of going to clubs two nights a week or <laughs> eight times a month, if I miss two days, that's $100, right? And if I do some other simple redirections, having done that for that long, I'd have over a million dollars right now. So um, I've been talking for a while, so I'll stop. I think that answers most of your question. Yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, and hopefully as young people listen to this, they'll say, oh, wow, I put away just that amount of money, you know, in 20 years, 25 years, I could be a millionaire. So yeah. some other, other quick redirects are limit or eliminate some of the things that you're doing on cable or streaming services or rotate, right? So if you're a binge watcher, so if you've got whatever, HBO, Hulu, Netflix, instead of having them all for every month, paying anywhere from 12 to 15, 20 bucks, rotate. So there's no cost to turn them on and off, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to do HBO this month. I'm going to do Netflix next month. I'm going to, and all that adds up. So those are, again, some simple ideas um, to help you get through that. If you're part of a, um, a big box or, you know, Costco or Sam's Club, go in with somebody else, share on the membership. Um, I'm single and I shop at, at, at both. And so what I'll do is um, exchange food with other folks who uh, who do that. And it doesn't sound like a lot. And again, I'm, I'm doing well right now, but just because I'm, I'm doing well doesn't mean that I'm going to, again, and God has blessed me, Angeline, to have been <laughs> in different situations. So a yeah. um, little bit more about my background, um, came out of college, Worked for IBM, uh, made 32 grand a year from 89 and kept going up. I was with um, IBM, Abbott, Coca-Cola, moved out to the D.C. area for a few years, did some other things, came back to Chicago in 01. I had already started my business, but to officially launch my business in 01. I started just before 9-11. Hmm. So some contracts that I had, they're like, sorry, dude, like we're not doing it. And I tore my Achilles tendon and so couldn't walk for about four months. And so my first year on my own, 2002, I made $4,200. And so, and then for the next few years, I made anywhere from 16 to 25,000. And so not that that's horrible, but, you know, 
I've, I've been at 4,200, I was broke and I amassed a lot of debt. And so I can appreciate when somebody says that they're broke or, you know, how do you get out of this situation? I've been in that situation. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, God has blessed me to be in different situations. I, I'm waiting on super wealth right now. Yeah. So I can tell people about that as well. But yeah, being broke, I, I've, I've got my experience there and, and being middle class and upper middle class. I got my experience there. You, you've you've seen it both sides. Absolutely. <laughs> you've seen it both and know how you can get out of get out mm-hmm. of the situations. Um, and hard work is definitely one of them. Uh, but being smart about what you're what you're able to bring in and, mm-hmm. and how you utilize those mm-hmm. uh, resources that you, that you do bring in. So you grew up in Chicago born and, and raised, then yeah. you born and raised and you left, went to the D.C. metro area, came back to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where you where you reside now. So w- who inspired you when you were growing up? So it's interesting. I remember the first time I was asked that question and my immediate response, because that's an interview question, like, you know, who, who inspired you? Who's your role model? And uh, my dad was my first response, by all means. And then I, I thought my parents and then later on, Ida B. Wells. Um, so my my dad absolutely inspired me, uh, you know, in so so many different ways, in that um, he was a very giving man, a generous uh, man. Um, you know, family was was important for him. Uh, if we wanted to do something, he he'd rarely say no. He'd say we shall see, which was frustrating as a kid because you want a yes or no. <laughs> and uh, you know, come to find out, he's like, you know, you you understand that you. And I don't have kids, but, you know, I'm 53. My, my father, um, I, he had me a little late. He had me when he was 36. So I was, you know, just finishing high school um, when he was my age. And I think like, wow, you know, I can't imagine doing all that he did for family um, at that age. Now, come to find out to me, it's like, OK, he was generous, but he was generous to family, his immediate family, not to everybody. Um, and so he was well respected by anyone, everybody. But I, I have a lot of friends in my social circle right now because I did what he did with any and everybody. Like I was generous and hey, if somebody needed help, that's what I do. So um, that's yeah, by, by far my, my, my biggest inspiration. Um, my mom uh, also to a degree learning about her family and uh, that sort of thing. And then, like I said, of course, I had to be Wells. So I can talk about that for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's it's really interesting that you say your your dad because you know when when people hear that you are the great grandson of the Ida B Wells you know or anyone who has a legacy of someone who came way before and who had an instrumental uh mark that they've made on on our history that that's what people tend to gravitate to right and so that's why I wanted to ask you first about you, who you were, your work, and um, who your influences were. So I, I appreciate you saying that your dad, your dad was there, your parents, um, because they had they had their own lives, right, outside of whoever came before them. So you said later on, Ida B. Wells became like someone who inspired you, and was that like later on in college, later on as you started to hear more and more people talk a little bit more, your family talk a little bit more about her legacy? So yeah, a combination. So Ida told her children like, you know, hey, don't, uh, so both as far as values go and as far as pressure goes, like, you know, don't worry about being a descendant of IDB Wells and don't leverage the Wells name to for your benefit, right? So. <laughs> Don't go around saying I'm the daughter. And you see this in, in you know, different families and legacies today is that, you know, people pop up because I'm this person's son or daughter or granddaughter or whatever. And so she did not want that. So um, that's definitely what my grandmother, Alfreda, um, and a quick story on that. The, the reason I'm here is so Ida's son, Herman Barnett, went to University of Illinois, um, Champaign. Um, and was one of the founders of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. Another guy by the name of Ben Duster, who was from Indiana, went to U of I as well, and he was one of the founding members of Alpha Phi Alpha. And so uh, Herman brought Ben back to Chicago to work with uh, Ferdinand, you know, his dad, Ida's husband, and 
Ben took a liking to Alfreda, who was his younger sister, which, you know, especially in any frat guys, no, you don't want your frat brother talking to your sister. <laughs> so Definitely it, it, not. Right, it did not go over well. Um, but fortunately, Ben had had the courage to, to, to you know, uh, to do that. And so um, they, again, so their children, so they had five children, Ben, Charles, Donald. So Ben, Charles, and Donald also went to U of I. Ben and Charles also pledged Alpha Phi Alpha, um, which I didn't realize. And then I, I chose, so without knowing that history, I chose, because I was looking at a different fraternity to join, I chose to, to pledge Alpha. And it wasn't until I pledged that I found out of that lineage and legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that brought more attention to me. Anybody who's pledged would know that <laughs> you'll get a little special attention for that. Yeah. Because um, so, you, had, you had some people that came before you. So, oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was like, OK, where's the Duster? Duster? I was like, oh, wow. Who's this Duster that's one of the founding members? <laughs> so that was um, interesting for me. And uh, so going back to legacy and, you know, when did I um, find out? So that, that was I, so that was one thing I, I didn't know about that um, made me appreciate um, her legacy and the, the, the uh, as well as the Duster legacy. Um, but my dad was a very humble guy. And he again, so talking about, you know, responsibility or legacy, all five of, of those children went to Phillips that they all graduated valedictorian or salutatorian, uh, my dad and his siblings. And so if, being black in Chicago, if your last name was Duster, we were related. And so, yeah. right. And so then their wives all were in education. Right. And so that was one of the more common things for black women to have access to was being a teacher. And so then that further spread, it's like, oh man, so you related to Miss Duster. It's like, okay, no, my, my, my mom, Miss Duster works at Caldwell. She, this other one works at this other school, this other one works over here. Um, and so then my cousins all went to, so Chicago has some more popular high schools, um, if you will, for black folks. And so Whitney Young, where my sister went before I did, Julian, um, Harlan, um, and uh, Kenwood. And so, again, if people heard Duster that there was recognition. So I, I was held to a higher standard as a Duster versus a descendant of Ida B. Wells because of mm-hmm. name recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories, which was not favorite at the time, is I was riding the wrong way down a major street in Chicago, Stony Island, where speed limit is 30, but cars go 50, 60 miles an hour. My parents knew about it, as did other neighborhood parents before we got home because Mrs. Russell saw us and called each and every parent. And so, again, it was the, the, the sense of community that on the block that I grew up in and the neighborhood I grew up, along with just the legacy of the dusters that held me to a higher standard. So it wasn't until really, I'd say, um, college and after that I found out more about Ida B. Wells and appreciated it. Because again, she's, especially back then, it was not taught um, in, the, in the curriculum. So that she right. had, she had better name recognition than Chicago because the housing development was named after her. So people would know Ida B. Wells, but they didn't know what she did. And so mm-hmm. they'd be like, oh yeah, Ida B. Wells, I want to rescue the slaves, right? <laughs> oh yeah, the one that invented. <laughs> so yeah, name recognition, but not full uh, knowledge of who she was. So I started to, um, she became more of my hero or shero. And um, as I began to, to read more about her and talk more about her, um, and really realize how courageous she was and uh, vehement and vigilant, uh, uh, vigilant that she was about um, civil rights and, and equality for, for everybody and her willingness to risk her life and sacrifice her time and time with family um, mm-hmm. to be one of the most prominent civil rights uh, people in America's history. So uh, I know that was a long answer to the question, but again, it was uh, it, it's it's not a simple answer. Right, right. Uh, no, and, and I appreciate appreciate the stories because when you talk about uh, you doing something, you know, back in the day, you did something on the street and, and everyone was going to call your parent or ensure that you were disciplined for whatever, whatever you did. Man, I can't <laughs> it's get not like nothing. today. No, nothing <laughs> at all. Not, not as long as, as as folks know who you are. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I could totally relate relate to that. So uh, your 
great-grandmother was very involved with the anti-lynching movement. I think that's probably my first uh, entree to knowing more about her as I went to Howard University uh, one year and learned probably more history in that year than I had in my previous years of being sure. on the planet, of course, because you don't, as you mentioned, get the curriculum in school about, I mean, you hear about MLK, you hear about, you know, you know about that, you, you know about Rosa Parks, but all the all the other heroes and sheroes of the civil rights movement, um, who we were before slavery, all of that we don't learn, right? And so um, learning about her uh, anti-slavery, um, anti-lynching you know, movement and how she really got involved and you, as you say, really a sh strong, passionate person. Uh, her resilience, I think, is one thing that really stands out is her willingness to do what she had to do to get the story out um, about or her friends who were lynched, her having the, the newspaper. There's so many aspects about her. One of the main things is um, courage. And, you know, her fight for justice is that um, we live in a society right now where, you know, the, the, so the challenge, and again, when you say civil rights movement, you, you know, it, it happened way before 54 and it goes, and I'm intentionally putting my, my hands beyond this. Right. It's, it's still going on, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, is that she was truly one of the pioneers of the civil rights movement going back to the 1880s, 1890s. Um, she would speak her mind and accept the consequences, knowing that it was going to be detrimental for her. So uh, one of the first things that she did um, as it relates to civil rights was um, being 70 years, and again, completely respect Rosa Parks. My frustration is our country's um, intention to limit the civil rights movement to that time frame. And I get it. It's like, if we want to be um, United States of America, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, freedom and justice for all, then we don't want to talk about that dark history that includes lynching, which is the unlawful uh, beating, killing, torturing of people, especially black men. Um, so her passion for civil rights um, and just a couple of stories that people probably don't know is that she was on a train in Tennessee in 1884. And my sister and I have done a little investigation. She may have gotten uh, removed from a train before then. We think she did, and, mm -hmm. uh, or she did. It's why this incident was more prominent. Uh, we think, I'm so not sure, but she was physically removed from a train. And so at the time you had the, you know, the Jim Crow laws where um, it was illegal to have segregation nationally, but then you could have things separate but equal. And so she bought a first class ticket or ladies car ticket, which was equivalent to first class. Um, and it had written on that train previously um, because it was legal and then it became not illegal, but it was like, okay, well, um, you'll have to give your seat to go to the smoking car where the black people are allowed. And she was like, nah, you know, I've ridden here before, I'm riding now. And she, I, Ida was a very elegant, dignified woman um, and a, a very fashionable woman as well. So at the time she was probably, um, she was a short woman. So five foot, probably a buckle five at the time. And a conductor was like, look, you need to give up your seat and put his hands on her to remove her. And she bit him and drew blood. And he was like, OK, Yikes. right, right. So she was a, a literally a, a literal and figurative fighter. Um, so it took three other men, two, two other men, total of three men to forcibly remove her from the train. And it, it was a fight. I mean, clothes torn, bruises, scratches. And when she was removed from the train, the other passengers cheered. And she was like, uh-uh. Um, no, this is this isn't right. Not just for me. So instead of going back against the conductor, she sued the railroad. Black woman, 1884, sued the railroad and won. Um, it went to the higher courts. It took a couple of years. The higher courts loaded, later reversed the decision in 1887. So instead of winning 500, she had to pay 200 in court cost. Um, but her vision to do those sorts of things was incredible. She um, was a school teacher in Memphis, 1889 and spoke out against the disparities because it was segregated. So she's like, here's the white schools, they've got adequate funding, um, you know, proper class sizes and the, the reasonable resources. And the black schools are 
overcrowded, underfunded, and <laughs> under-resourced. And so she wrote that in the paper freelance, so she didn't get fired. But the next semester, the, the school did not renew her contract. So same thing. So that's what launched her into journalism. She had to find a job. And because she had done some writing and um, had a relationship with the people at the Memphis Free Speech, she negotiated to be the lead editor and, and co-owner. Um, so, and during um, that time, being the editor and co-owner, I mean, right. Tremendous. A, 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 that, that just didn't happen back then. So again, the older I get, the more I appreciate it because it, it sounds incredible to a degree, but no, I mean, that's literally, literally incredible. And the, again, the racism, sexism back then was so much worse than it is right now. So we complain and rightfully so about the way things are right now, because there's still a lot of room for improvement. But back then, a black person and a black female, like you're not supposed to write and especially write about intelligent or controversial things. And she did. And so um, those, those are reasons that, that she's amazing to me and that when her three friends were lynched in 1892 in Memphis, she wasn't there when it happened, but that's when she became America's first investigative journalism. Is that the, the short story on it is uh, they, the three men were co-owners along with probably about 10 other men, a, 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 a co-op of a grocery store, the People's Grocery Store, which was across the way from another grocery store that was owned by a racist white store owner. Bottom line, there was conflict. Um, and uh, some other racist uh, white people came to destroy the people's grocery. Black men defended themselves, ended up shooting uh, one of the white men. Um, bottom line, a few days later, um, those three men, so they rounded up a, a lot of the black men in town, put them in jail. Um, a few days later, those three men were taken from their jail cell. Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, Will Stewart and taken to a place um, down the way from a place called The Curve that I've been to, but it was a little bit further away than that, and beaten, tortured, and, and killed. And she was so close to Thomas Moss, she was godmother to his child and best friends with his wife. And when she got back, she you know, heard and read the stories, and they didn't say thugs, but essentially like, hey, these thugs were doing this. She's like, no, wait a minute. Like These are completely upstanding men in the community. And if they're saying this about these men, what about some of these other things I've read about other black men have been lynched. So she literally went and did interviews and investigated other lynchings, um, over 200 lynchings, and eventually published an article on that. Um, and that's what, um, so a, a racist mob went and destroyed her printing press. Um, some people say fire, it's not necessarily a fire, but her printing press was destroyed and she didn't return to the South for decades. Um, which, as we talk about legacy, you know, you talk about a, a, a thriving business at the time that she had to literally walk away, away from. Mm -hmm. And so the economic impact of that, you know, affects generations. If you've got a news media entity, which at the time was a newspaper, that you can have be successful and pass down. Wow, that's that's a financial legacy that was not able to continue. Right. So. I, I think of the. Uh... The Tulsa race massacre and and so many other other communities where black businesses were thriving and you know because of whatever jealousy uh, the fact that they that white people did see these businesses thriving and mm -hmm. they they are destroyed and that was their legacy right um, mm -hmm. anything any heirlooms that they had in their homes during Tulsa you know all destroyed uh, the stories. Uh, suppressed in in even in, in the schools in in Oklahoma that people just didn't know this history right uh, and so I uh, that just brings to mind that it it's a blessing that sh that this history is there mm -hmm. uh, it's just a matter of of finding it because it's it's not going to be told in schools the way right. we would like for it to be and so we don't want our kids to be educated about anything historical arts right well Right. Nothing bad. I mean, that, that's the challenge is, yeah. you know, I, I love America. I love the USA. Um, but for us to to move forward, and again, we've made a ton of progress. There's still a ton more to be made. The, the challenge is to do it. You've got to have open dialogue, uh, open discussion, um, apologies, um, healing. Uh, you know, when you say reparations, people won't run away from that word, but there needs to be some type of, you've got Redress. a system, yeah. right? You've got a system that has, systematically intentionally oppressed and you see i've got a whole bunch of books you know you, you mm -hmm. read the color of law you read the new jim crow you read 
again, so many things were not so not just at a neighborhood. I'm saying from the higher courts to this higher courts in the states to the cities is that it's systematic intentional oppression. And so there needs to be systematic, intentional, purposeful remedies to that. And so, um, again, soapbox on, on, on that, which we can talk about. No, time. we can we can talk about that all day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let me ask you the. Um, the the lynching, because that's what it's it's has been called of Ahmad Arbery, George mm-hmm. Floyd. Uh, it's taken decades. But recently, the House passed the anti-lynching legislation that was named after Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. Um, what would she think about, here we are, 21st century, that lynchings are still occurring uh, and that there is now some anti-legislation, anti-lynching legislation that has been passed? Like, how would she... How would she feel about this? Finally, <laughs> finally, finally, finally. So she, um, 1898, uh, not alone, but with a um, group of other people as well, met with President McKinley to have lynching be a federal crime. And the significance of that is, if you think about it from a, just a basic thing, it's like, okay, well, lynching is murder, murder is murder, so what's the big deal? So murders are investigated at a local level for the most part. And so if I'm the sheriff of a town and I'm, I'm, that's my brother or cousin or my fishing buddy who did the lynching, guess what? Nobody's going to jail, right? And so um, of the, and again, you have different statistics, anywhere from upper 4,000, 4,500, 4,600 um, documented lynchings. And I, I'd say the number is probably five to 10 times that. Um, of people who, who were killed with, again, lynching is the, the beating, torture, murder of somebody without um, a, a legal uh, trial, um, without legal representation. Um, and so literally um, only a handful of people um, were properly accused and almost no one went to jail for lynchings. And so, you know, if you get making it a federal crime, you get federal resources to come in and investigate. And so with that, you know, you're probably going to get consequences of jail time. And again, if I know that I can do something and get away with it, hey, I'll do it. Now, if I know there are consequences, I may not do it. So who knows what the impact, the total impact would have been had they actually done it um, and, uh, you know, made lynching a federal crime. And on that side note, I was actually, um, I went to in 2005, the U.S. Senate issued an apology for never passing any anti-lynching legislation. So, of course, you know, for something, uh, a bill to become a law, it needs to go through the House and then the Senate or vice versa. So three times it went through the House and made it to the Senate, and the Senate did not sign off on it. And so that's why they issued an apology. And I met uh, James Cameron, uh, namesake to the movie director. Um, he's America at the time was America's oldest known lynching survivor, because technically lynching involves death. Um, but he did survive. And so he was with two other people, um, not when they committed the crime, but when they got caught. And so the first person was taken from his jail cell, beaten, tortured, killed. Second person, same thing. James beaten, tortured, literally had the noose around his neck. And I've read different accounts, whether it was a male or a female in the audience, but somebody was courageous and vehement enough to say, hey, stop, you know, let him go. So they didn't let him go, but they cut him down, went to jail, served some time or whatever, but lived another almost 80 years. I met him in 2005 um, and he did the Black Holocaust Museum, um, got married, had children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. And again, that's what we don't think about with lynching or, uh, you know, murdering or incarcerating the wrong person is that you're not just saving that person. And James Cameron is easy because we can document it because he was a survivor. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, right? Right, the so generations. Of, right. Mm-hmm. So you're not just saving a person, you're saving generations, you're saving a legacy. And so that's the impact that um, making lynching a federal crime, which it finally is. And again, you know, I know Ida's quote would have been finally. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it took so long. I'm sure she is like clapping in heaven right now. Mm-hmm. So quick story um, as it goes to legacy and um, my friend Doria Johnson, who's the one who invited me to go along with her to the uh, 
U.S. Senator Polish in 2005. Her great great grandfather was lynched in Abbeville, South Carolina, in 1919. This was during the, the right, you know, because of what was happening in the country during that time frame. But he was a, a farmer, um, owner of land, 423, 425 acres of land. Got into a confrontation with a so he's selling his cotton again at the time. Uh, racist white owners, store owners were not wanting to pay blacks equal pay, equal value for cotton. So you had a lot of riots, and that was one of the things, one of the factors. Bottom line is, got into a conflict with the racist white store owner. Um, the guy hit him; he retaliated. So his name is Anthony Crawford. He was lynched. So this family so leave town by tomorrow morning and otherwise we're going to kill all of y'all too. So that's 1919. The family has not had access to the property since. Wow. 420 plus acres of land that other people are on that um, should be the rightful, that the Crawford family should be the owner of that. Mm -hmm. So again, just going back to the impact of lynching being a federal crime and remedies for these such things that happen where uh, businesses are destroyed or land is kick off the land and you're mm -hmm. never the, the rightful owners are never given that their, their chance for ownership again so there's a, a reparations reparation education project that is looking at some of the the descendant mm -hmm. land issues um, so that's an interesting story because i hadn't heard of that so um i really think that having you here to talk about the legacy of your great grandmother and the legacy of other other people and the legacy of your father uh, and your mother is is really important because you're here now carrying carrying on that legacy right helping mm -hmm. helping folks generate wealth mm -hmm. and helping people and organizations really deal with these issues of diversity and equity my immediate reaction was like i'm disappointed with with what i've contributed so far is that um, my expectations of myself are to do so much more than I've done, especially when you compare it to an Ida B. Wells or Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. And again, not that, um, you know, we should compare ourselves to other, but part of it is natural, is that um, I've, I've wanted to contribute so much more. I feel like I'm, I'm I, you know, I've, I've talked to tens of thousands of people cumulatively, um, and I, I'd like to continue to do that. So to continue to, so the legacy I want to leave is, the financial component is having people, and again, going back to my mission, is that I intentionally, uh, my original goal was like, because the average advisor can reasonably handle about three to 400 clients or families. And so I intentionally tripled it because I was like, if I tripled it, you know, I was like, I can do 300 on my own, right? Maybe 400, maybe even 500. I was like, but now let's do something that I can't do. So God has to be involved. Mm -hmm. Right, God has to be involved anyway, but you know, for for that, that's that's beyond my capacity. And so, since then, I've, I've actually went ten times that. So I say ten billion, but a billion is a lot easier to say and remember. So we'll, we'll go with billion. And again, that, that's still triple my original goal. Um, so literally, to be able to impact at least a thousand families, um, to help them create the legacy that they want, and um, you know, in, in talking with you, there's. I said the billion dollar mission, but I'm also going to do a website called make your legacy matter. Um, dot com. So you heard it here first and you, you were influential in that, Angela. Okay. And I was like, okay. I want to give folks a website. Some of the ones that I wanted were already taken, <laughs> <laughs> um, but make your legacy matter.com is, you know, a lot of people think of, of legacy as um, again, financial or, um, you know, kids and what did you leave? But it's like, how did you leave this world better? And so some of the things that, that I've done and what warms my heart, and I just had a friend, uh, a white female from Canada who was a, a facilitator. And years ago, she shared with us that she felt like, and I'll, so I'll confess my ignorance because I think more people need to do that in order for, for us to grow. Is that you know, especially mostly through my my twenties, hey, white people get along and y'all don't have problems, <laughs> right? 
Um, if, if you're white, hey, life is much better just because. And you know, some aspects of it may be, but that's not um, that's not true. Um, and so she said, as a Canadian, she felt um, uh, like an immigrant and immigrant in the negative sense of the term for America, because America can be welcoming to some and not welcoming to others. Right. Yes, so, we, yeah, right. And so I just never would have imagined that a white woman from Canada would feel that she's not accepted in America in, 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 the, in the U.S. And so I periodically reach out to her just to say hello. And sometimes she would respond. Sometimes she wouldn't. I would take a would not take offense. But literally last month, she um, got my permission, asked for my permission to publish, in essence, that story, which I didn't realize that she noticed that's what I was doing and that I was intentional about it. But she was like, you know, Dan will reach out to me. Sometimes I would get back to him. Sometimes I wouldn't. But it made me feel comfortable. It made me feel that he cared. And so that's a big part of my legacy is that I've got a sincere interest in making the world a better place and not only helping people achieve their best, but to um, enjoy life, um, embrace themselves, love themselves and be able to love others. I, I firmly believe that you know, if we love ourselves, that most of the problems that we have in society would go away. Is that people who love themselves don't don't hurt other people, right? Yes, yeah, most most definitely. I I really think that your great grandmother would be very proud of what you have done. That you didn't have to like totally change the world, but you you're doing your part. <laughs> you're uh, definitely thanks. definitely doing your part. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I sincerely appreciate that. Thank you, Angela. And I really thank you for joining me today. This has been just an amazing conversation, you know, from finances to legacy. Uh, we've we've covered a lot of ground here. So I, I appreciate it and, and thank you for joining me. Certainly. Thank you for having me. And anybody interested in reaching out, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, if you Google or Bing me or whatever, um, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I'm relaunching my website, danduster.com. I've got to get it. Yeah, so right, financial industry is, is uh, restrictive about that. So I've got to get it compliance approved. Uh, oh, okay. But hopefully by the airing of this, it, it will be up and running. So Okay. If, so againduster.com. Correct. And the website that you're working on now is makeyourlegacymatter.com. Correct. And you are on LinkedIn. As I'm on LinkedIn. Duster. So like I said, if, if, if those aren't up, I'm on LinkedIn. Just okay. Dan Duster. <laughs> And, and feel free to reach out. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And thank have you. A good afternoon. And a big thank you to you for what you do. Um, I appreciate what you're doing with Heirloom Estate and Legacy Preservation. Um, I, I'm humbled and honored to be part of it. And hope, hopefully, we can do some other things in the future. Yes, most definitely. Thanks so much. All right. Take care now. Take care. Thank you for listening to Heirloom and Legacy. If you want to learn more about the work of Heirloom Estate and Legacy Preservation, you can find us on the web at LegacyPreservation.life, on Instagram at Legacy Preservation, and on Twitter at Heirloom Legacy. Many thanks to my exceptional executive assistant, Queen Karen Garrison, aka Mommy Activist, and my outstanding podcast producer, Jonathan Reed, who you can find at reidentify.co. Thank you again for choosing Heirloom and Legacy. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about us.